9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and once again, I'm standing in as host in place of David Rothkopf, uh, who is hiding in an undisclosed location. I uh, also wanted to remind you all, David told me, he, he actually wanted me to say that he was traveling or something like that. But I'm going to tell the truth to our listeners because I think they deserve it. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, I also wanted to remind our listeners that we are all going underground next week, the week of December 25th, where we will be busy uh, furthering the secretive interests of the deep state. Uh, While you all are opening presents or doing whatever it is that you're going to be doing, we'll be hard at work. So no Deep State Radio podcasts the last week of December, but we will be back in January. Sad. So sad. I know. (laughs) Uh, Well, even the Deep State must rest. Um, We will be back in early January with our usual two podcasts a week, uh, resuming, I think, on January 3rd. So back with me today uh, here in Washington, D.C., in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is the Atlantic's Julia Yaffe. Uh, Corey Shockey is joining us for one of the last times from sunny California. She's not joining us for one of the last times. She's going to have to join us forever and ever and ever. But soon she will be joining us. I am going to do it from London. From London, where she will be taking up a post as the Deputy Director General at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, otherwise known as IISS, because you can't say IS because that sounds like IS, which sounds like ISIS, and Corey would never go to work for ISIS. Every time I get their emails, my eyes Mm. do like a weird dyslexic thing. I'm like, oh my God, ISIS just emailed me. Corey, we are going to suggest that as one of your first tasks, you consider raising this issue with them and getting them to change their name. Um, But Corey's also going to be a visiting professor at King's College London, where she will be teaching in the War Studies program because who needs peace? Uh, and finally, we have Kim Goddess joining us uh, from Beirut, where you probably didn't know this, listeners, but we do have uh, an outpost of the deep state uh, in Beirut, Beirut because we have tentacles everywhere. Uh, Kim Goddess is a senior visiting <laughs> fellow with the Carnegie Endowment. I think Lebanese intelligence <laughs> is going to start searching for me right now. Uh-oh. Sorry about that, Kim. <laughs> uh, and she is also a correspondent with the BBC. Um, so I wanted to start out by talking about the national security strategy released this week by the Trump administration. We touched on this a little bit in our last episode. Um, but, uh, you know, in theory, Congress has mandated that every presidential administration periodically produce and make public its strategy for addressing the national security needs of the United States. Uh, Traditionally, administrations uh, try very hard to avoid doing anything about it and they sit on it forever and they sulk and they have this gigantic interagency process and it produces a nice Christmas tree which says nothing whatsoever. That's the tradition of national security strategies. Every now and then there are exceptions. Every now and then there are surprising things. uh, so I thought we should spend a little bit of time talking about, since it is the it is the holiday season, um, is this national security a, a Christmas tree just in time for the holidays with a little ornament for everybody? 
Or is this something different and more sinister, Corey Shockey? Oh, I I was sitting. You knew I was going to give you this one. Pick me, pick me. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So this uh, this national security strategy does not make the mistake that most national security strategies make, which is to put every ornament on the Christmas tree and have no prioritization Mm. of effort. However, it does make another fundamental error that most national security strategies make, which is that uh, it looks to me to be largely irrevalent to the actions of the Trump administration. What exactly. was so striking to me about the president's um, speech announcing the release of the national security strategy was how widely at variance the president was that he appeared to be repudiating it completely policies. while introducing it. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. <clears throat> um, where the strategy and the president, Um, are on the same sheet of music is an assertive economic nationalism, that the real source of our strength is is the economy, that uh, multilateral trade is damaging to the United States, that allies are taking advantage of us. Um, A lot of those kind of America first themes from the president's campaign and from the way he has governed. Do you guys remember Rodney Dangerfield? Yeah. Do you remember, is this sort of like the the Rodney Dangerfield strategy? No respect. I don't get no respect. Um, Sorry, Corey, we just totally, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, Corey does not remember Rodney Dangerfield. Never mind. (laughs) It is much too late form a cultural reference for me to get, Rosa. My mistake. You're at least 60 years beyond my reach. Disregard. (laughs) (laughs) The The second problem with the national security strategy is that most of it would be unrecognizable to Donald Trump and is certainly unrecognizable to the policies. Let me just give you a couple of my favorite greatest hits about what's wrong with the national security strategy. It argues, for example, that we must champion American values of tolerance, of the rule of law, of human rights and human liberty. Yeah, Um, I think he's had his fingers crossed. (laughs) <laughs> no, he just didn't read that far because it, it didn't have Trump every five words, so he kept so he'd keep reading. And and the folks who wrote the national security strategy, all of our friend Dr. Nadia Shadlow, prominent among them, had a very difficult task, which was trying to harness the president's revisionist policies in a way that actually does advance America's interests. And I really admire um, what Nadia was trying to accomplish. You really admire her doomed effort. I just don't see, I just don't believe the document is strong enough to discipline the president. And, And there are so many places where what the strategy says uh, is either wildly at variance with the president's practice or contradictory with other parts of the strategy. And let me just give you one example, then I'll stop, uh, which is that, you know, the strategy talks about the essential economic requirement of sustaining America's technological advantages. And a 
a line of policy that would do that would require high-skilled immigration. It would require uh, fostering the American brand so people want to come here. It would require support to world-class universities. And it would require ensuring every child in this country gets a scientific and technological innovation. Do any of those four things sound like Trump administration policy? Hmm. I'm going to say no, Corey. Is that a rhetorical question, Corey? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on some level, right, there's nothing new about having a national security strategy that consists of platitudes that bear very little relation to actual policies. Um, um, But I was – one of the things that that struck me, you know, every now and then you do get some statement that turns out to – be really meaningful uh, and, in fact, to predict a significant shift in U.S. actions. And, and obviously, for instance, the national security strategy of George W. Bush, uh, I think it was the 2002 national security strategy, uh, in, incorporated into it a discussion of the potential willingness of the United States to take preemptive military action when necessary and and was seen and it turned out correctly as being uh, a way to pave the way for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which obviously was not premised on some specific aggressive action that Iraq had taken uh, vis-a-vis the United States, but was instead premised on the notion that we had to take military action and invade Iraq and get rid of Saddam Hussein, because if we didn't, he would at some future point uh, develop and use, or he had already, we thought he had already developed and would use weapons of mass destruction that obviously turned out to be uh, not the case. Um, but that 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 philosophy, that, that strategic approach of the U.S. is willing to flout a longstanding tradition of uh, using military force only in self-defense against some sort of attack that has already occurred. We're willing to use it to prevent something that we believe is going to occur, not necessarily imminently, but sometime in the you know reasonably foreseeable future, uh, was viewed as a big shift and, and the administration did carry through. Um, in this national security uh, strategy, um, we don't have anything quite like that. But what we do seem to have, which is interesting on a couple different levels, um, uh, is a willingness to call out Russia and China in particular and to treat them not using the language that the Obama administration used as sort of potential partners, et cetera, but to really treat both Russia and China very similarly as as adversarial states that we need to counter in in a very wide variety of ways and and two things struck me about that you know one one is this a sort of reversion to a more cold war like us stance of you know it's us against the it's us against the commies they're not commies anymore but it's the same bad guys we were focused on prior to the collapse of the soviet union which is to say russia and china viewed as bad guys and number two i mean this is very much in line with what you were saying Corey. um uh, as far as i can tell from president trump's comments uh he thinks that the Russians are our, our dear pals, and yet the national security <laughs> strategy seems to be suggesting that they are not our dear pals. Is that, in fact, a contradiction, Julia? But that's th- this is this is what I'm what I said in in our last episode, which is what what does it mean to make policy 
for the Trump administration, when there's the Trump administration, like his National Security Council, um, whatever White House advisors he has, and then there's Trump and his Twitter feed and his fancy and when it strikes him and what he decides, you know, he thinks about Xi Jinping or Vladimir mm -hmm. Putin in that moment. So, you know, I was struck by the same things when I was reading that and I was like, did did Trump read this? <laughs> and and it, and that's been this and that's been um I feel like the case all along. Do you I, hope that the answer is yes or do you hope that the answer is no? I don't know. I just I I don't even know what it is to hope anymore. <laughs> oh no, that's so sad. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, <laughs> Thorny oh, crown of empathy. Beirut where where we know all everything about hope. Yeah. Corey, wait, so, 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 I'm so, gonna, so the I'm one, wait, 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 I just, I just, of optimism. yeah, Ooh, you fun. need a loan. So, um, I was, uh, I just thought back, you know, reading this part of the, uh, national security strategy, I, I was transported back to the, to July, 2016 and sitting in, you know, the nosebleed seats at the Republican national convention. And Listening to all these speakers like Rudy Giuliani talk about the evil Russians and they're so evil and terrible and Vladimir Putin's a dictator and he's a bloody dictator. And in the meantime, they had just changed the Republican Party's platform to say that they won't be providing lethal aid to the Ukrainians and Trump is talking every chance he seemingly gets on the campaign trail about how strong Vladimir Putin is and what a great leader he is, unlike you know, the fool who's currently running our country, our country <laughs> at the time. Right. And 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 I just remember sitting there and thinking, like, when they're backstage together, do they talk like did they talk about this at all? <laughs> because I, I, I just I don't know. I it's like um, it, it's just, you know, again, the last the next iteration of Trump as performance art and holding up a mirror to. Whatever conventions we have, for example, in the foreign policy national security world, it's like, oh, you you guys traditionally produce a national security strategy. Here's a national security strategy as kind of Dada performance art. <laughs> see. Wow, <laughs> Kim, is this is this uh, Dada closing? performance art? That's fantastic. <laughs> is this creating any ripples at all in in Beirut and the conversations that you're having no. with Lebanese? Do they even no, notice not really. this? Not, not really. No, I think that that's not something that that um, you know would would create ripples um, here as a as a, as a document. Uh, you know, like I said in our previous episode, we you know people in the in in Lebanon in the Middle East, you know, do follow American politics very very closely. One of the questions that I get at from every friend in every conversation is, um, you know, when is Donald Trump going to be impeached? Can it be done? What's happening with the Mueller investigation? That is, you know, something that people are very focused on here. They're mm -hmm. trying to understand what is going on. They don't follow, you know, every twist and turn, but but they are following. You're not as bombarded here um, in, in Lebanon as you are in the U.S. on, on Twitter and on television by uh, you know, all those details. But one thing that struck me in this um, document is uh, the phrase, the great power competition is back. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, um, a reference to how, you know, engagement with rivals um, does not bring them into, you know, into the global order. And, and that approach um, was built on a false premise in previous administrations. It, it kind of struck me because, um, 
you know, the idea that great power com- competition is back, I think only America thought that it was over. I think everyone else was getting ready for the next round. It's a nice uh, point. You know, the, the Russians, you know, the Iranians, the Syrians, I mean, everybody was just getting ready. And certainly, I mean, Julia, you know, you've written this amazing piece, which I hope we'll talk about. Um, you know, certainly Vladimir Putin's been getting ready for, you know, revenge of, of some sort. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea that in, indeed, you know, engagement with rivals would, would bring them into the fold. I remember very well in 2008, you know, interviewing Condoleezza Rice around the time of the Georgia, you know, the, the Russian invasion of, of Georgia in 2008 and, and asking her, you know, what the United States had in terms of leverage when it comes to Russia. And she said, well, you know, um, I can't remember verbatim now, but it was something along the lines of, well, you know, if they want to be part of the global order, if they want to join the WTO and things like that, you know, they, you know, they can't do, they can't get away with, with, with invasions. And I said, well, actually, maybe you've got it wrong. Maybe they don't want to be part of the WTO. They want to play in their own system. And I think that that's something that's always, you know, amazed me about the United States and American foreign policymaking that, you know, people tend to think in, in, in the U.S. and in the West that everybody wants to be like you in, in a way or that they that, that they want to play by your rules or that they want to be part of that system. They don't necessarily want to be part of that system. And success is defined very, very differently. You know, does President Bashar al-Assad think that he's successful? Not by any Western standard, but he's still in power. Still there. So for him, that is success. You know, does Vladimir Putin thinks, think that, you know, what's his policy in the Middle East is 100% successful, you know, for many Americans or for, you know, a lot of Arabs, probably they think, you know, it's a disaster because, you know, there are countries that lie in ruins. But, you know, he looks around and says, well, you know, I've got power. <laughs> Works for um, me. Totally. So, I, I, tot- yeah. I totally agree with you, Kim. I think that Americans are, and there was a great, great piece about this a couple years ago. Um, I believe Brookings published it about um the different ways in which, for example, Israelis and Americans see the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? The Americans want our fix-it people. They're perfectionists. They're, yeah. you know, like they're, they're, yeah, that there there has to, if, for every problem, there is a solution. And we can find it if we just try hard enough. Whereas so many other powers are kind of much more comfortable with a very problematic, chaotic, bloody status just quo. Keeping it at bay. Yeah. So it doesn't get too right. bad, but. Right. You know. And and the Russians, I think this is where we misread the Russians. The Russians don't need 100 percent. They'll ask for 150 percent. And even if they get 30 percent of what they asked for, that's still great. So, Julia, um, Kim mentioned a piece that you just published uh, a short time ago uh, on Vladimir Putin. Uh, and you talk a little bit about the ways in which um, – we have come to see him almost as this uh, incredible global mastermind, this Machiavellian puppet master who just run rings around us because he's so incredibly devious, you know, to use all the metaphors that we like in the in the foreign policy world. You know, he is seeing 10 moves on the chessboard ahead of us, whereas we're playing checkers, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and you argue that that is not the case and we are really in some ways both overestimating but also fundamentally misunderstanding. Putin and what he thinks he's doing. Totally. I think that um, this isn't just, you know, you guys have it wrong. I want to correct your narrative. But it's it's also, you know, if you want to devise a good policy for dealing with Vladimir Putin, you should understand the problem accurately, which is not what's happening. And I and we keep 
the reason he's running circles around us or we think he's running circles around us is we com- are misreading him and expect him to zig and to zag, whereas he's quite obvious. He, he, it's not that hard to – and we, we mythologize the Russians. We think they're omnipotent and omniscient and 12 feet tall and well-funded and well-organized and detail-oriented and – deeply strategic. And none of those things are true. Uh, I, I remember when I was last in Moscow talking to a Russian military analyst who said, you know, I read what you write about us in the press, in the American press, and you write us about us as if we're Germans. We're not. You know, like, where is the Russian messiness of things? Like, right. And um, I was just talking to an Estonian diplomat who was, you know, and the Estonians are by no means pro-Russian. But she's like, you guys, what, why do you think, why do Americans think this about the Russians? You know, why aren't we writing about all the misfires mm-hmm, that they that mm-hmm. they had in the last, if, for example, in the interference campaign in the 2016 election or in Syria or in Ukraine? And I think it's very important to realize how, you know, the none of these things exist in a vacuum. Putin went into Ukraine because he thought we were – we toppled Yanukovych and we were after him next. He annexed Crimea. He found himself in global isolation, kicked out of the G8, which bothered him tremendously, sanctions imposed on him, etc. He's kind of a PNG in the West. Again, blow to his pride. So what does he do? He, if you recall, between the annexation of Crimea and you know, the intervention in Syria in September 2015, there were a bunch of very high-profile terrorist attacks, for example, in Paris. And Putin was always kind of first on the scene saying, see, we're facing the same enemy. We're all on the same side. Don't forget Ukraine. We're all on the same side, on this counterterrorism side, which, by the way, was is what he said to Donald Trump right. this and last Donald weekend. Trump was, this right. is, the, this yeah. is like the main – Putin's last calling card is counterterrorism. And – so then he – under that banner, he went into Syria to try to come in from out, out of the cold in which uh, he found himself after the invasion of Ukraine. That was getting better, getting better. He's saying, OK, we're, we're fighting ISIS even though you guys are too scared to. We're defending West, Western Christendom even though you're too scared to. Here's our orchestra from St. Petersburg playing in Palmyra, which you guys were too scared to retake from ISIS. Let, uh, forget that they lost to ISIS a few months later. Then he meddles in the you know then he gets kind mm-hmm. of high high on his last success and he intervenes in the U.S. election. Now he's out in the cold again, so he just kind of bounces. He's kind of like that, um, and and the U.S. is too. Like he's kind of like that girl who's always dating the exact opposite of her last boyfriend, <laughs> you know, and and just and, and going from extreme to extreme and with a lot of collateral damage, a lot of blowback. Crimea turns out not a great decision. Turns out it was part of Ukraine for a good reason because it's actually connected to Ukraine by land. And now Crimea is cut off from electricity supplies, from water supplies. Food prices have skyrocketed. There's no more – barely any tourism comparatively. The economy there is kind of cratering. People there are shocked at the levels of corruption that the new Russian government has brought with them. I had – when I was there in April, I was talking to a bunch of Cossacks in Sevastopol who are telling me how the Jews run everything and how they, they've, you know, subjugated the Russian people for long enough and how happy they are Ugh. to be part of Ukraine, uh, part of Russia again and how much they hated Ukraine. 
But then they slowly started talking about how— They really missed the Jews who actually ran things. No, they were—what they started saying is, you know, prices are super high. All our businesses have been taken away by Russian bureaucrats. One guy was with a cane because a Russian bureaucrat had put a hit out on him. Uh, And the courts are totally corrupt. They can't rely on the laws. You know, Moscow came to them, and and I said, you know— you guys, I hate to break it to you, but there's really no way back from here. But if you had your druthers, what would you want? And one of them says, you know, I would like to be an autonomous republic and then join Israel. Oh, and golly. I was like, you know, Israel's <laughs> full of Jews, right? And they were like, well, they're not as bad as Russian bureaucrats. And at least it's a society of laws. So like all these things keep backfiring on them. There's thousands of Russian citizens fighting alongside ISIS and other extremist group and groups in Syria. And they're starting to come home. And there's been an uptick in terror attacks in Russia by people who have been radicalized either in Syria or remotely by people who have been in Syria. Uh, the... Election interference in 2016 has massively backfired for Putin. The sanctions are here to stay for at least a generation. Like he doesn't foresee the consequences. He's not thinking 10 steps ahead because if, you know, he he had the state dope all his athletes at Sochi and now they can't go to the next Olympics because it backfired so badly. If he were that omniscient, wouldn't he anticipate that? Wouldn't he think about some kind of consequences? He doesn't seem to or he totally miscalculates. Kim? Rosa, I have a question for, for, for Julia that I'm, I'm very intrigued by this idea that, um, you know, this, this impression that Americans have of Vladimir Putin as omniscient, omnipotent, that is not accurate. And I'm curious about why you think, you know, looking from the U.S. or at the U.S., why that impression is such because I know that, for example, in the Arab world, you know, we always looked at America as omniscient, omnipotent. We thought they had all the answers. They always had a plan. And when things went wrong, Lol. or we thought, well, actually, that is part of the plan. And my favorite quote ever about American policy is by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who said that the problem with you Americans, <laughs> I love this, is that you never make. Or he said the genius, rather, the genius of you Americans is that you never make clear-cut stupid decisions, only complicated stupid decisions, (laughs) which makes the rest of us wonder what we're missing. Um, And I'm I'm wondering whether, Julia, with with Vladimir Putin and the way he's seen by by the United States, is is the idea in America that Russia or Vladimir Putin specifically is sort of omnipotent, omniscient, is that a reflection of America's own, own sense of a vulnerability I think and that they so. feel outdone by Russia or that he is doing things in not always clear-cut moves that makes it look like he's actually, yeah. you know, uber smart? Yeah, I think it's both. I think that's an excellent question. I think it's both. Um, in part because these things that he does do are done in such a complicated way. Like in Crimea, for example, these guys show up, they're They seem to be Russian military, but they're not wearing badges. They have all the latest Russian weaponry, but, you know, they seem to be untraceable. Um, It's all done with this high level of complexity in that moment. And so you think that Mm. the whole – that the rest of it, that it's kind of backfilled with as much complexity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's backfilled with a lot of like fake it till you make it kind of thing or we'll we'll deal with it when we get there. Uh, And let's just keep going and we'll figure it out as we go along. And the funny thing is um, nobody in Russia thinks Russia is this strong. You know, 
I, I think America gives – like Russia's biggest fans are Americans right now in the same way that when Russia was very anti-American, for example, when the pro-democracy protests broke out in 2011, 2012 – the Russians, the way they talked about the U.S. State Department was just extraordinary. It was this amazing, sleek, um, <laughs> right. sleek uh, and uh, adroit organization that was super well funded. And there was just with deep pockets, there was nothing they couldn't do. And it was just, you know, it was just hilarious if you had ever set foot in Foggy Bottom. Um, and, and I think it's just this natural, in some ways, just a natural human impulse that uh, if if you feel like you're losing, then it has to be you're losing to somebody who's so good, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise you're just an idiot. So there's this wonderful piece that James Fellows wrote when he came back after being the Atlantic correspondent in Beijing, and and his argument is that the United States always feels like it's failing, and that's why we succeed. Right. Like in the 1950s, the German Wirtschaftswunder was going to overtake the American economy. And, you know, within 10 years of the end of World War II, Germany is once again a superpower and we're marginal to the world. In the 1970s, it's Japan Inc. And these people understand everything about manufacturing and about a less conflictualist society. And and now it's China, and then it was China, and and maybe next comes Russia. And I absolutely agree with Julia that we are making Yay. the Russians seem so much better than they actually are, and that we are not using the strengths of our own much more advantageous position. Most important among those strengths is transparency. Right is is showing what's actually happening and letting people judge for themselves, um, and that by doing, but I'm more confident than she that by um, by overcompensating for the risks that the Russians pose to us, that we are actually going to find good answers to limit their mm. influence. Also, I wanted to add, I, Corey. I think you're absolutely right. Um, what I keep thinking of is uh, when I see. Americans finally visit Russia and they're like, wait, we thought these guys, you know, because when when the <laughs> when the Soviet Union fell and everything came to light, right, because it was a deeply opaque society and it's becoming more and more opaque now or has become more opaque now. Once the kind of the doors were open, we could walk in and walk around. We were like, what? We were afraid of these guys? Nothing works here. <laughs> and I think that that's – I often see that response when Americans visit Russia today. They're like, wow, we really thought we were going to lose the Cold War to these guys? And I think that's kind of important to keep in mind, that they do not have their shit together at <laughs> all. <laughs> well, that's it. That's as optimistic and hopeful as I'll get on this podcast. Okay, that's really optimistic. Yay! I, I can <laughs> confidently take back the crown of optimism. No, 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 no. I've already she pawned it. it. She needs it. <laughs> um, but let me, can I change the subject completely uh, for our, our last little bit here? Um, there are lots of subjects we have not talked about, um, including North Korea and the latest news in our Apocalypse Watch. But because we have uh, you three amazing women here uh, together, uh, I-, I thought just touch really briefly on 
an issue that has been dominating the media here in the United States, which is uh, the, the the repercussions of what some have called the, the Me Too movement, um, starting with uh, the accusations against uh, Harvey Weinstein, the movie producer of sexual harassment and assault. And we've seen since then, in the months since then, we've seen, seen numerous women come out and uh, go public with with similar allegations against other prominent men in the media, uh, in politics, um, in every major field. And uh, we've seen some very high-profile resignations and maybe we'll yet see some prosecutions. I think one of the things that we're all wondering obviously here in the United States is, is this going to – is this – in five years from now, is this going to look like a blip or is this going to be a tipping point where we start seeing real and significant change? And and I thought I'd ask all of you, um, how – is this going to have an impact do you think in the worlds that we inhabit, the the foreign policy national security, journalistic worlds, policy worlds? And is this having any ripples at all outside of this country? So I'll start just because I'm uh, an impetuous woman. So um, Go for it. Uh, first of all, I just, you know, watching the Russian space, Russians, including Russian women, don't get it. Right. They they just think surprisingly enough, Vladimir yeah, Putin and they're is def- not and they're defending the men. his voice in support of uh, believe women movement. Right, right, right. <laughs> but just you just see everyday Russians uh, defending the men. Closer to home, I I think the Me Too movement is extremely important. But what, I think that it offers men an easy out, that it's like, OK, just don't grope women in the office, but continue paying them less, continue uh, not promoting them. Because in my world, in journalism, you know, I can name on half a hand how many publications like newspapers, magazines have a female editor-in-chief. There's like th- literally three. Uh, foreign policy just got a new editor and it was shock, a man. You know, so until it – moves into that space, into the kind of it, – it, to me, it's analogous to the uh, question of Russian interference in the election. It's like a simple, small thing that we can focus on that ha- that seems very black and white. Like, oh, um, Donald Trump won the election not because of all these big complicated questions of, you know, a racist backlash to the first black president and a lack of media literacy and an increasing polarization and political tribalism and – you know, the years of Fox News and what it's done to our political discourse or money in politics. It's like, yep, just Vladimir Putin, who is walking around shirtless, picked our president. Easy. Done. <laughs> right? Here it's like some people um, – Men grope women and that's the problem as opposed to it's actually part of a larger issue of the way power works in the workplace and the way that women are systematically disadvantaged and systematically kept out of positions of power. And until we start having that conversation and until some a lot of these men are replaced by women, I think it's um, it's just a hashtag. So I don't disagree with anything Julia just said, uh, but I come but... to different conclusions. <laughs> I come to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is that um, I would actually be happy enough for the outcome of the Me Too movement to be women don't get groped at work. Um, 
because I am be a good skeptical start. that the revolution is nigh and that it's actually going to lead to a deep-seated reconsideration of misogyny and and sexual and gender privilege on the part of men. Um, uh, so so I will settle for the incremental progress of women not being sexually harassed in their workplace um, without it without it achieving uh, even much better outcomes of women bosses or best yet of gender blind selection for things. Yum. Um, as, <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be a great place. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Moreover, I am, uh, pretty worried about the backlash possibilities. Totally. About yeah, yeah. people not hiring women because because, you know, the vice president of these United States doesn't want to risk his integrity and honor with baseless accusations um, that I actually think this has the real potential to be damaging totally. to women in the workplace. Or that men, or that it, men stop mentoring women, yeah, right? The, the Mike Pence rule prevails. Absolutely. When I went to work in the joint staff in 1990, I was the only civilian on a staff of 1,500 people. And I think it is also true that I was the only woman. And, and I would hate to see us go backward from that standard because as the vice president Pence's of the world justify their misogyny on the basis of their need to protect their integrity and their honor. And, and I'll conclude uh, by saying, you know, that if your honor is so fragile and so precious that it can't risk uh, sallying forth and engaging with the world, it's not worth very much. Kim, how does this look in Beirut? Are you seeing Me Tooism, or is this just completely not penetrated uh, culturally speaking? No, it's definitely it's it's definitely noticed here, and it's definitely being talked about. And I think you can see the beginnings of something similar, uh, but very very slowly. For many reasons, it's it's hard for women to come out in public and say Me Too with very with you know details and specifics about what their experience might have been, um, because of you know the shame that comes with it. I don't think people in the region are ready to necessarily take that step, but the conversation is there. And we've had, for example, quite amazingly, uh, a Twitter hashtag in Saudi Arabia with women actually publicly, because you know some of these profiles are public, some some are um, some are not. Um, but talking about how they were asked for sexual favors in exchange for a job. And I think that's quite revolutionary for, for the region, that these kinds of conversations are, are beginning to, um, to take place. But in, in the Arab world, we have, you know, domestic violence, um, issues of, of gender inequality when it comes to, you know, uh, marriage, jobs, uh, you know, you name it. There's, there's so much that still needs to be done in this region when it comes to gender um, equality, when it comes to sexual harassment. In, in Cairo, 99% of women in Egypt 
have had to deal with sexual harassment. I mean, just imagine that number. Mm -hmm. But I also want to say something, and I will choose my words very, very carefully. Um, I also want to say something um, to the effect that, you know, it's it's not uh, accurate to look at the Middle East and think of Arab women as uniformly downtrodden and and harassed and having no rights. Uh, you know, I have to say that as a Lebanese woman who grew up in, in, in Beirut um, with a Lebanese father uh, who'd never lived overseas until I went to the U.S., the first time I had to deal with sexism in my face uh, as a woman, the first time that I was mansplained, which is a term I learned in the U.S., was in the U.S., I had not had to deal with that kind of attitude We're proud here. to have and invented I've, mansplaining. Um, well, and, 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 and men do it a lot in the U.S. <laughs> in ways that I had not encountered even in the Arab world. And I, I don't know what, what that's about, but I just want to say that, and it may be very particular to my experience, but I, you know, I covered Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Iraq and Syria and Jordan um, and I found that, um, you know, sexism in the U.S. Is, is, is at a different level and it happens too often on a daily basis in daily interactions. That is not to say that we don't have um, our own problems and they are quite big in the Arab world. Uh, but I, 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 you know, um, I, I do like to, to, to raise that point every time that, uh, you know, people in the West should not look at women in the Arab world as, you know, uniformly silent and, and downtrodden well, and because I, that is not the reality. I think if nothing else, this, this Me Too moment in the United States has made it sort of crushingly, painfully clear that we haven't yeah. advanced as far in this country as we may like to pretend that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a very good point. I think there is some glee also um, in countries uh, in, in the Arab world when they look at the U.S. and they see all that unfolding. They say, well, you see, you know, they're not much better than us. And that is in itself, then a dangerous slippery slope mm -hmm. where this, the whole whataboutism... Well, this goes back you know, to Julia's fear that they, they may people, yeah. the may takeaway maybe if you don't actually sexually assault people in the workplace, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of work to be done um, in in the Middle East, but it is it is happening. Change change is happening. Laws are being altered. You know, when Saudi Arabia and, um, announced that it was going to allow. Uh, women to drive next year, the only country in the world where women aren't allowed to drive, but they will be able to from uh, from next year. It also introduced laws to criminalize sexual um, harassment. We've had a series of laws being changed um, in Jordan, in Lebanon, the so-called marry your rapist um, laws, um, which again were seen as sort of, you know, this, this, this uh, terrible Arab uh, Muslim uh, way of of uh, of silencing women and shaming them into marrying their rapist. When, if you look back in history, those laws were put there by colonial powers. And in France, it's only in '94 mm. that those marry your rapist laws were taken off the books. They weren't being implemented, but they were still there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think I think it's a time around the world where everyone needs to take a sort of a, a good look at themselves and figure out, you know. 
um, what are their own shortcomings and try to to address them and, and, and not lecture others too much. And, and indeed, this is a, a good subject for New Year's resolutions for all of us. Uh, <laughs> and I think that with that, we're going to end this episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, reminder, we will we will be in the bunker next week, the week of December 25th. No podcasts. Uh, uh, if you want, you can direct your, your gifts, presents, mistletoe, etc. to the Ministry of SNARK. Uh, and we will be back on January 3rd with, with a 2018 first edition of Deep State Radio. So thank you, Corey. Thank you, Kim. And thank you, Julia. Happy New Year from Beirut. And Happy New Year to you all. С Новым годом. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.